Well, brethren, I want to speak on a very important topic. It may seem like it's not as important as some of you are exciting, but it's very, very basic, and it does involve your eternal life very, very much. When Mrs. Armstrong was dying, Mr. Armstrong had us come up to his personal study, and we would talk about it and pray together, the evangelists at headquarters, and he mentioned that he felt that we needed to get closer to God and one thing he particularly mentioned, he sensed the church was getting slack in Sabbath-keeping. And he began to preach on that not just once, but two or three times. And I think we tend to be that way today. We have hundreds of brand new people coming in all the time, too, who have never kept the Sabbath. And I have found that many of our older members get shallow. They get, you know, careless with Sabbath-keeping. But God does not want us to do that. We have our younger people growing up in the church, and they take God's Sabbath for granted. It's nothing special to them, and they often don't keep it correctly either. And so we do need to concentrate on that. And I want to mention this. I want to speak today on honor God's Sabbath. Honor God's Sabbath. It's not the Jewish Sabbath. It's God's Sabbath, the Sabbath of the Creator. But when I first came to Ambassador College back in 1949, I had grown up in a typical Midwestern, small Midwestern city in a typical family. We attended the Methodist church and always kept Sunday and Christmas and Easter and the whole works. Of course, we would go to church Sunday morning, but Sunday afternoon we could go out and go fishing or hiking or whatever we wanted to do. And it had no special meaning except to just get up and go to church. You didn't think of it as the Sabbath. And... When I first came out and heard about the Sabbath, I was kind of uh, disappointed. I was staying with my uncle, Dr. C. Paul Meredith, who wrote the old correspondence course, 58 Lessons. And Dr. Hay and I both wrote part of that, but he wrote most of it and outlined it all for us. But he talked to me one morning. He had been there several weeks ahead of me, and he didn't know either. And he said, well, Roderick, he says, I want to tell you something. He said, Mr. Armstrong understands things about the whole purpose of God more than anyone I've ever known. And he had quite a background. I won't go through it. My uncle did. He'd attended six colleges, and had, Ambassador College was his seventh college. But at any rate, he said, this man really understands the purpose of human existence and understands the Bible. And he said, he's into something that I didn't know. We didn't know when we came out. Mr. Armstrong didn't used to mention the Sabbath on the radio program. I came out just knowing here's a man that made sense out of the Ten Commandments. He made sense out of the Sermon on the Mount and out of Jesus' teaching. He would go through on the, on the radio programs. And, and he made sense out of prophecy that God was working out a great purpose. And I could see he really understood that more than any man by far that I'd ever heard of. So I came out. But he said, well, he said, you know, we're going to church this afternoon. This was a Saturday morning, my first Saturday morning. What? You know, he said, don't worry. He says, you'll see it's okay and it will make sense. And so I came and I could see these were normal people. And, and we had Dr. Ralph E. Merrill, a medical doctor, very successful practice over in Glendale and successful people going to him, a very cultured man, frankly, had got his doctorate from Harvard uh, University and other Dr. and Mrs. Hal Lisman and my uncle Dr. Meredith and his wife 
and many other successful people happened to be in that little church already for various reasons, even though the church was only about 20 or 30 people when I came, and it kept growing and growing, just meeting in the library room of Ambassador College. But at any rate, we came, and Mr. Armstrong got up and spoke, and he made it very dynamic and very interesting about prophecy or something, I don't remember, but the second or the third Sabbath I was there, he gave a sermon proving the Sabbath was what we ought to be keeping. The seventh day Sabbath was the day that Jesus kept, the apostles kept, and was the sign of God's church, the sign of God's true people, the sign of the covenant. And that made sense to me because he went through. His sermons, by the way, were not quickies like we give you. A lot of you newer people, you think we're, you're getting long sermons. Boy, you ought to have been back then. The average sermon, the average service of the entire service was scheduled for 1.30 to 4.30, three hours. But Mr. Armstrong would often go over and uh, to 5 o'clock, and then we'd have a three-and-a-half-hour service and so on. But we got used to it. We did not have Reader's Digest mentality back then. There was no television, or virtually none, and we just, uh, no one was watching it yet, a little flickery black-and-white thing of no interest, mainly old wrestling uh, going on and Hopalong Cassidy Western movies and no nothing of worth or interest at all. And there isn't much of interest today either if you really think about what uh, they call it the great intellectual wasteland. That's what most television is even today. But at any rate, he made it very, very interesting even though it went a long time. And so we did learn a lot. And it was all new to us as well. It was all new. And so it was interesting to see these new things presented almost every Sabbath. But I came and I began to learn about the Sabbath and appreciated it. At first, I felt badly because I thought, boy, I'm going to L.A. And I knew they had the boxing uh, matches every night down in this certain auditorium every Friday night. And I wanted to see Bob Waterfield. He married Jane Russell, the old uh, film star. And he was the quarterback for the Los Angeles Rams. And, of course, they played on, on Saturday, too. And I had all these ideas of things to do on Saturday. And I got there and thought, well, I can't do this and can't do that. And that's what a number of people think when they first hear about the Sabbath or some of the young kids growing up in the church. They get the idea, the Sabbath, you can't do this and you can't do that on the Sabbath. And you need to have a different approach to it. You really do, because I came to have that without anyone giving me a sermon like this. I just came to realize that, and I hope all of you can too. So let's get into that. The Sabbath is a very joyous time and ought to be thought of as a time you really look forward to, which I nearly always do, and I hope most of you do too. But I was initiated to it in that way. Yet I saw there was a tremendous amount of joy and love and warm fellowship and peace at Ambassador College campus when we were all keeping the Sabbath together. And I came to realize, again, no one else ever told me this, but I realized it myself, and I've told you this before. If you think of the Ten Commandments all week long, you're not only not to kill, you're not to have hate in your heart which is the spirit of murder, all week long. You're not only not to commit adultery, you're not even to think about another person of the opposite sex in that way except your own mate. You're committing adultery in your mind otherwise. All week long, you're not to twist and exaggerate and lie and tell untruths. God hates lying. 
he will not let liars in his kingdom. And he, all who love and make a lie, he says, will not be there. That's all week long. All week long. Only one day you're supposed to rest. That's pretty harsh, isn't it? <laughs> a lot, yeah, a lot of people think of that as a hard commandment. One day of the week you're to rest. In tomorrow's world, as it was at Ambassador College, that will be the easiest commandment to keep by far to just rest on the Sabbath and to do the other things I'm describing. So let's understand that. God's law is not hard, and the Sabbath, frankly, is a great blessing. So we do want to think about it, and the fourth commandment, as I say, is the easiest commandment of all to keep. We need to understand God's mind. So please try to open your mind if you have preconceived ideas and try to think about what is God's mind on this. This book, the Bible, is the revelation of the mind of God. That's what this book is. God's the way He thinks, the way He is. And Jesus said, as you know in Luke 4, verse 4, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the only word of God they had was what we call the Old Testament. And that's what Jesus preached out of continually. He referred to the Old Testament. He didn't call it the Old Testament. He just called it the Word of God. And the New Testament is composed of hundreds of verses from the Old Testament. And all Jesus came was not to do away with it, but magnify. And he said, you're not only not to kill, you're not even to hate. He didn't do away with the killing law. He magnified it. He made it all the more binding. And that's what the New Testament is all about. Turn with me, if you would, then, to Mark. Let's begin in the New Testament in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, and I want to begin here in verse uh, 21. He said, no, I'm sorry, verse 23, verse 23. Now it happened in Mark 2, 23, that Jesus went through the grain fields, wasn't wheat, probably barley, in fact, on the Sabbath. And as they went, his disciples began to pluck the beads, heads of grain. Now, the Pharisees had invented 65 different do's and don'ts that they had added to the Sabbath. And people in the church today either go to one extreme or the other. They'll just go ahead and watch any television program that comes along, or they'll go to a movie, or they'll do this or that and break the Sabbath, or else they'll try to add all these do's and don'ts to make the Sabbath the burden. We're not to do either extreme. Either extreme is wrong. Try to follow the example of Christ and have the mind of Christ in the way you keep the Sabbath. So that as Pharisees were upset at Jesus and his disciples, he said, look, or they said, why do they what is not lawful on the Sabbath? Well, where does the Sabbath command say it's not lawful? You can't find it. We'll go back and read it, but it's not there. They had added these things. That was their law the law of the Pharisees, it wasn't God's law. But he said, have you never read what David did when he was in need and, and hungry, he and those with him? And in the days of Abiathar, uh, he ate the show, they ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat. In other words, it wasn't a matter of the Ten Commandments, but normally the, the priestly law showed it was dedicated for the priests. But because of the hunger, God's law of mercy overrode that of the law. And so he said, and except for the priests, and also gave to some of those with him. And he said, the Sabbath was made for man. God made the Sabbath. Who did he make it for? Oh, he made it for the Jew. That's what a lot of Protestant ministers tell you. 
Where were the Jews when God made the Sabbath? There weren't any. There weren't any Jews. He made the Sabbath back in the Garden of Eden. And I'll explain that when we get there. He made the Sabbath for man. He meant it in a generic sense, mankind. Man, women, children, everybody, every human being. He made the Sabbath for man. Notice the Sabbath was made. Who made the Sabbath? Well, we'll see back there. Frankly, it was made by himself. It was made by Jesus Christ because Christ is and was the God of the Old Testament. It says in 1 Corinthians 10, 4, that rock went before ancient Israel. We read about it throughout the Old Testament. The, the God of Israel was called the Rock of Israel. That rock was Christ. It shows you in John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, all things were made by him, and without him nothing was made that was made. That is Jesus Christ. Christ made the Sabbath. He made the heavens of the earth. He made man. He made woman. He made marriage. He made the Sabbath. He made everything that was made. Christ made the Sabbath. And it was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So man was not made so he could keep all the laws the Pharisees had invented to make the Sabbath more difficult. He was, But the Sabbath was made to serve man. Therefore, the Son of Man, that is Jesus Christ, is Lord of the Sabbath. The Protestants try to say Sunday is the Lord's Day. That's ridiculous. There's not any place in the New Testament where you have Sunday as a regular day of worship. And I'll give anyone $1,000 of my own money if they can prove there is, because that would be a wonderful discovery for the church. Well, it wouldn't be wonderful, but I mean, it would be important if we're wrong on such a basic point. No one can do that. I used to mention that over the radio when we were on radio. I guess they should do that on television. I don't know if I should come out and get in their face or not. But I'll be glad to give them $1,000 if they could prove that because they can't do it, of course. They've never been able to do it and never will be able to do it. It's not in the Bible. The Bible prescribes Sunday, a Sabbath as the time of worship, not Sunday or the day of the sun, which the pagans introduced into the uh early Catholic Christianity to make it easier for the pagans to come on in who were already sun worshipers anyway. The day of the sun, the ancient soldia. Therefore, the Son of Man is Lord of what? Sunday? No, he's the Lord of the Sabbath. What Sabbath was he talking about? You know, some might even argue, uh, people in total ignorance, say, well, he meant Sunday. Well, of course he didn't. He was talking to Jews. All these Jews were around him. They knew what day the Sabbath was. That's the day they kept, the seventh day. And he was a Jew. And then chapter 3, Jesus entered the synagogue again, and a man was there with the withered hand. Here the man had this withered hand, like this woman I told you about back in Kansas who had a withered arm and was healed by Mr. Armstrong and just grew right out. And they watched him closely whether he would heal him on the Sabbath that they might accuse him. Well, what was wrong with healing on the Sabbath? Well, it broke one of their laws. It didn't break God's law. It broke their human tradition. Then he said to the man, he was upset at their human traditions and their self-righteousness. Step forward. And he said, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. So then he looked around at them with anger. Christ didn't hate the man and want to kill him, but he did have righteous indignation sometimes. Christ, the Son of God, did. He looked on them with anger. What's wrong with these self-righteous Pharisees? Do you know the people that Christ got the maddest at in the entire Bible? 
just start reading the Gospels and read Matthew chapter 23 and many other places. It was the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders. They were more guilty because they were actually misleading people and having their own ideas in place of God. He said the harlots and and tax collectors will get into the kingdom of God ahead of you people because you people are so self-righteous you can't see straight. But these other people will repent at least and they haven't had a chance yet. Of course, he knew most of them did not understand. So he didn't appreciate the religious leaders setting their own ideas as they do today. He looked on them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their heart. And he said, stretch out your hand. And his hand was restored whole. What did the Pharisees do? Just thank God this man was healed? They're so grateful this man was healed right in front of them. No. What did they do? Then the Pharisees went and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him to destroy him. They wanted to kill him. They were jealous. They were jealous. So that is often the attitude of false ministers. We're going to be persecuted, frankly, by the religious establishment more than by the general public, probably, before it's all over, just like Jesus was and Paul was and others, and you may live to see that. Anyway, Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He made the Sabbath. Let's turn back to where the Sabbath was made now. Turn back, if you would, uh, brethren, to to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and here is the story in the Word of God. He'd been describing how he made the heavens and the earth and all the animals, and finally Adam and Eve were made in verse 26 of chapter 1. God said, let us, not me, Two beings, the Father and the Logos, the spokesman. Let us make man in our image. And so he began to make man in the very image of God, to be like God. And then he saw that everything was very good, verse 31. And the morning and evening were the sixth day, chapter 2, Genesis 2, verse 1. Thus the heavens and earth were finished and all of them. And on the seventh day... Not just any seventh day, the seventh day. Here's a progression. And God made a certain amount of time, holy time. It's holy time in God's sight. It's special time. You can't tell the difference. That's one reason the Sabbath is a special command. You can draw a roof over your head, and you can't tell that Saturday, as we look at it, is any different from Sunday as far as the weather or the way it looks. There's not some bright light coming from heaven, apart from the sun, I mean, or some unusual uh, static electricity going or something on the Sabbath day, you keep the Sabbath by faith because God said so. You have to prove it. And God made it holy time. And so on the Sabbath, the seventh day, God ended or completed his work, which he had done. And he, Christ, actually, acting for the Father, the Logos, he rested. He didn't have to rest physically. He was made of spirit, but he set us the example. He rested on the seventh day, not any seventh day, from all his work which he had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it. Sanctify in a biblical usage means set apart for holy use. So it was made by God holy time. He sanctified it because he had rested from all his work which he had made. This is the creation of holy time, special time. And we are in that holy time right now. 
Now let's go to Exodus chapter 20, if you would. Exodus chapter 20. And let's begin here. In the beginning, God spoke all these words, saying, I am the eternal your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, brought them out of utter slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You're not to put anything ahead of the Creator God, the true God. And that is the first and great commandment. Frankly, people in the world think, well, we just, you ask them how if they have any religion, they'll say, well, you know, we, we try to do good and love our neighbor. We keep the golden rule. Well, that's not all bad, but it's not all good either. That's what Adam and Eve took up, the, the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil mixed together. You can have a wonderful, good meal, but if you put just a little bit of strychnine in there, you're dead. You're dead. You're not to have anything ahead of God. Then he said, you're not to make any image to represent God, and you're not to take his name in vain. And then the next thing ties right in with God the Creator, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day, not just any day, and keep it holy. Now, if I had a, a pan of water up here, and I said, I want you to keep this water hot. And if you came up or one of your ladies and say, well, I, I can't keep it hot. It's not hot. It's cold water. How do I keep it hot? And maybe we didn't have any stove in the building here. You couldn't keep it hot. It wasn't hot in the first place. The Sabbath was made holy. It was already holy. God made it holy. He tells us to keep holy what only he can make holy. He made the Sabbath holy time. Keep it holy. Six days you'll labor and do all your work. And we see throughout the examples, and I could say five sermons on this, but God shows that they did various things. They didn't always just, uh, in their work, you know, they didn't mean they had to every single day be out digging a ditch or something, but their work, their normal carnal activities, including work, but normally you should work six days doing your work five or six days a week and then be busy doing your chores and other needs around the house and so forth. God does want us to be busy. He says if a man will not work, he should not eat. That's a command from God. That's part of the Sabbath command. Six days you shall work. God wants us to work and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the eternal, your God. That's holy time. And it you shall do no work, you, your son, daughter, manservant, maidservant, or stranger within your gates. For in six days, and this is the point, in six days the eternal made the heavens, the earth, the entire universe, in fact, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. He made it holy time, holy time. He hallowed this particular period of time that this time was to be set apart for special use to point to what? To point to the true God. Because people can say, well, I just keep the golden rule. Well, you can smile and say, well, that's nice or whatever you want to say, but they really don't. They cannot love their neighbor as themselves unless they first know and serve the true God and have his love to teach them how to do that. All kinds of good Protestants and even these Protestant ministers like Jimmy Baker and Jimmy Swaggart and on and on and on, they may come along and preach sermons and get all emotional, but what do they do? They think they're going to keep the golden rule in general, but they interpret it and they water it down along the way as they wish to. 
So I just want to love my neighbor, but if this really pretty blonde-headed woman next door, she's younger and prettier than my wife, and my wife's getting older, and she's not as pretty anymore, and she's fussing at me, and we're not really happy, but I'm beginning to have an affair with this woman next door, and we can be really happy, so really everybody will be happy if I could marry this other woman, and then my wife can go her get herself another man if she wants to. We, you know, you love, you just love your neighbor as yourself. Everybody's happy, right? No, you don't let you, your carnal mind interpret what God said. You've got to let the Bible interpret what God said. And God says, thou shalt not commit adultery, and you're not to have sexual thoughts about another person beside your mate. Without God's law to guide you, man's mind jumps the track. Without God's law to guide them, my Methodist minister and these Catholic priests with the thousands and others They'll go up, we'll have a Catholic bishop back in the World War One and World War Two. My father was over there in World War One and saw it over in France and Germany. And you'll have the Catholic bishops on one side blessing the troops that go up the ridge with their bayonets fixed. And you'll have the Catholic bishops, the same church, on the other side blessing their troops. And then the troops go up and learn to twist the bayonets as they were taught to do and I was taught to do in ROTC so the guts spill out quickly and people die. As our sergeant told us, he said, well, you know, fellas, he said, you, you've got, you're told you, you're supposed to die for your country. Ha, ha, ha. But the best way is to help the other die, guy die for his country. And he laughed. And so you've got to learn how to kill him quick. Now, one part of the church comes up to slaughter the other side of the church, and they're each blessed by that same church's bishops. Is this wonderful? <laughs> I think you could see the utter hypocrisy of that. They don't understand. They water down God's law over and over in regard to sex, in regard to war, killing, and everything else. They don't understand. They have what the Bible calls carnal minds. So you've got to learn to let the Bible interpret the Bible. And that is a very important thing to where God explains what he means by not killing and by not committing adultery, and so on. So the Sabbath was to point out the Creator God. He blessed the Sabbath and hallowed it and made it into very special holy time. And then we go to Exodus 31. If you turn over to chapter 31 now of this same book, Exodus chapter 31, and it says in verse 12, the eternal God spoke to Moses, speak to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths, not Jewish Sabbaths, God's Sabbaths, you shall keep. For it is a sign. For what is the sign between God and His people Israel? We are the spiritual Israel today, as you know, the Israel of God. And what's that special sign between us and God? It is a sign between me and your generations that you may know that I am the ever-living one who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath. Therefore, for it is holy, it's holy time. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, right along with the other commandments back in that time where they had the administration of death. If a man and woman committed adultery, they were to be stoned to death or hanged. We don't say, oh my, you wouldn't do that today. Well, if we did, the crime rate would drop very quickly, frankly, if every, every smart aleck teenager who got out and killed someone was hung in the public square the next day, the crime rate would just drop quickly, very quickly. But of course, God won't do that until people begin to understand. He's not trying to call people. In tomorrow's world, they will be taught. 
and we will be there teaching them and so on. But back then they were taught it was the law of the land. It was the law of the land and they were taught that and they had no doubt very little crime compared to what we have today. But at any rate, he showed how important this is. It's just as important as not killing. You say, how can you dare make the Sabbath as important as not killing? Because if you don't keep the Sabbath, if you don't have that connection with the true God, you are going to water down and your church is going to water down and your nation and your whole society is going to water down as I've explained, what it means to kill, what it means to commit adultery, what it means to break up families, what it means to have same-sex marriage, and all the other abominations that people are getting in today when they water things down that are clear in the Bible. So we're told not to do that. Therefore the children of Israel, verse 16, shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations by a perpetual covenant. Therefore, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. Doesn't go away. For in six days the Eternal made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he was refreshed. So God wanted that. And I didn't have this in my notes, so I'll take a minute to find it here. But back here in Galatians, with my stroke, I can't turn to things as quickly as I used to. But back in Galatians and many other places in the New Testament, as most of you brethren know, it says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 15, Paul wrote in the New Testament, For in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but a new creation. Verse 16, Galatians 6, 16, And as many as walk according to this rule, per peace, mercy upon them and upon the Israel of God. The church is the Israel of God, and we are to keep God's commandments, and they are never done away. And we could say, well, other scriptures show it, but they don't. The scriptures do show that Christ kept that same Sabbath. All the apostles kept that same Sabbath, and the early church of God kept the seventh-day Sabbath for hundreds of years until it was finally stamped out by the black-robed bishops of the rising group that became called later the Catholic Church. And the true church had to flee to safety in the northern, in the Alps of northern Italy and Switzerland and elsewhere to escape from the great whore who was persecuting the true church of God. So anyway, uh, the Sabbath is the sign of God and the sign of the covenant. So brethren, let's review. The Sabbath is what? It's a sign of the true God, the creator it points you to the Creator God because He rested from His creation. Everyone that gets away from the Sabbath gets into other gods, frankly, when you really understand it. The Sabbath points to the Creator God, the one true God who made the heavens and the earth and everything that is. And secondly, it's a special sign of the covenant. And if you've made a covenant with God personally, just as ancient Israel did as a nation, and you're part of the Israel of God, you would want to keep that Sabbath day and must keep that Sabbath day as the Bible clearly indicates. So that's part of the thing we need to understand. Now, how should we keep the Sabbath? Well, of course, he says you're not to work and you're not to, you know, do your own thing. You're to work six days, but on the Sabbath day, you're not to work and have all this physical effort involved as a day of rest. And we see other places it's a day of worship and so forth. So that's very important. You find now 
brethren, let's turn back to uh, uh, Isaiah, if you would, Isaiah 58 here. Turn back to Isaiah chapter 58, and you find something here, and I want to explain it in a way you may not have thought of. In Isaiah 58, in verse uh, 3, he's talking about fasting. He says, they say, why have we fasted, Israel says, and you've not seen, afflicted our souls, and you take no notice. In fact, God says, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your labors. See, fasting is a way of seeking God and obeying God, getting close to God, just like Sabbath keeping is. So he ties them together. He ties them together in this chapter when you understand that's why these things are put together. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate, to strike with the fist of wickedness. You're trying to exalt yourself and be self-righteous and put the other guy down. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. Is it a fast that I've chosen for a man to afflict his soul and wear all kinds of sackcloth and be self-righteous? Verse 6, is this not the fast that I have chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to come out of sin? Most of you know the definition of sin. 1 John 3, verse 4, sin is, what is sin? Sin is the transgression of the law, breaking God's commandments. So you're to loose, you're to quit that. That's the fast God wants, to undo the heavy burdens where people add do's and don'ts to a lot of things, and they add do's and don'ts even to the Sabbath, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke. Sometimes we're yoked by sin, we're yoked by human laws, human traditions. We're often, every man who is a sinner is a slave of sin. God says a number of places in the Bible, you just can't stop drinking. You just can't stop smoking. You're a slave to sin. And so God tells you, you've got to not have that. You're to break every yoke. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? You're to share your bread and give things to others and help them like Jesus told you should do on the Sabbath day and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out. And you should do that on the Sabbath day, these kind of good works to help other people. Is it wrong to visit others on the Sabbath, to encourage them, to call people on the phone on the Sabbath, to encourage them to maybe write encouraging letters on the Sabbath, to encourage other brethren to help brethren in other ways without working all days, 12 hours to build a new fence around their backyard. Of course, that gets into a lot of physical work. But it's good to do good on the Sabbath and that you bring your house the poor who are cast out. When you see the naked, that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. He says, do this, and then your light will spring forth speedily, and God will bless you. And then he says in verse 13, Verse 13, if you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, kind of a parallelism, you're seeking God by fasting, you're certainly seeking God by keeping His Sabbath. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure, it doesn't say you can't have fun on the Sabbath, but you're doing your pleasure, just doing things you want to do just to have fun. On my holy day, it's not the Jews' day, it is God's holy day. And you're trampling all over with your dirty feet when you do things on the Sabbath that are just worldly and get in place of God and thinking about God and doing good and worshiping Him. And call the Sabbath a delight. 
you should learn to call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honorable, and shall honor him. As I said, the sermon subject is honor God's Sabbath. He says, honor me and honor him. Not doing your own ways. You're not to do most of your own ways on the Sabbath. You're not to even be out just hunting or fishing for fun. I've enjoyed hunting out in West Texas four different times and got a deer or two each time. And it's fun. But you have to hike and hike and get up early while it's dark and take a lot of effort. And you can't draw close to God in that special way that you would on the Sabbath and do that or fishing either, or any other type of thing like that, or going to ball games, or whatever it is. So you shall honor him, not doing your own ways, nor finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. That sounds very strict, and in a way it is, but in a way it's not. You've got to speak words, but on the Sabbath day, what should you talk about? And it's hard to do that when you're surrounded by carnal people in your home or in your place of work or you're here or there on the Sabbath day and people talk about something. You just sit there and say nothing, but you're supposed to talk about the Creator, about God's laws, about the work of God, about lives that are being changed, and about worthwhile things during that period of time. That's what God wants you to think about during that period of time. So don't speak your own words. In other words, on the Sabbath day, I shouldn't take off until some great big story about how I was out in West Texas and shot this deer and tell the whole story in detail or about my hunting trip or fishing trip or my, uh, you know, boxing exploits or uh, the dates that I had or the dances I went back to back in high school or whatever. You're not to think about and have your mind on those things. You shall honor him, not finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words. Then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth. He will bless you if you and your heart will try to seek him and serve him and draw close to him and focus on God, on Christ, on his kingdom in this special period of time. He'll bless you and feed you with the heritage of Jacob, your father, the mouth of the ever-living one, as I might explain to our new brethren when it comes to or the Old Testament, if it's capital L-O-R-O-D, it means it's from Yahweh. It means the eternal, the one with life inherent within himself. Mr. Armstrong used to call it the eternal. Moffat translates it the eternal, the Moffat translation, or it can mean the ever-living one, the one with life inherent within himself. It has more meaning than just the Lord. Lord means boss. But the, term, the word Yahweh goes beyond that. The mouth of the ever-living one has spoken. And brethren, we need to really listen to that and think about that very profoundly. So brethren, and I say to all of you, you young people, and some of you older who get in these same habits too and maybe have never broken it, yes, you should avoid the vast majority of television on the Sabbath. Because television has all this shooting and violence and direct or indirect references to illicit sex and running around and all this kind of thing. You're simply pushing a button. I can understand that more than most of you young people can because some of you grew up with television and you've never seen anything else. For 18 years of my life, I didn't see one television show. And I've told you this. About the time I turned 18, I was at the Hollywood Y in Hollywood, California, and I came in and saw this strange-looking box in the 
in the parlor down there, and it was television. And they were had a few places, public places, they were starting to put television in. And my friend David Korn had hitchhiked out from Missouri. They didn't have any television in Joplin or Kansas City or other cities. They just began to have it in New York and L.A. and a few places. And two or three years later, by 50 and 51, it began to creep in. But most people didn't have television until at least 1955 or 6. We never saw it. You could live 20 or 25 years of your life and never, ever see it. To see that kind of stuff, I had to go to the Saturday matinee, and even then I didn't see anything like you see today, but we would have Hopalong Cassidy chasing the Indians over the hill and some matinee for the kids on Saturday, breaking the Sabbath, I didn't know about it, and, and uh, then we'd come home, and the bright sunshine would be there, and we were in a normal setting again, and you could quickly forget anything that was bad, but now young people can punch a button, and suddenly they're seeing men and women caressing and fondling and all over each other. They can see a man shooting and shooting and getting on a knife and stabbing and stabbing and blood and guts and screaming. And you, they have these blow-up movies, I call them, you know. I, my wife and I go to a movie occasionally, and then we'll see the previews of another movie. And the previews of the movie show, a car is blown up, and then pretty soon a guy is fighting on top of a train, and then pretty soon the train blows up, and then this building blows up, and then everything blows up. I just call them blow-up movies. It's just crazy. What do you learn from this? Nothing. You just It's insane. You have no benefit to your mind, no benefit to your eternal life, the only benefit is from the young smart alecks in Hollywood who write these scripts and put this stuff together, and they make some money. I guess it's benefit, beneficial for them, but they're wasting your time and destroying your character as you watch this crazy stuff. So we were blessed, frankly, who lived at a time that stuff did not exist. We didn't have to fight the temptation to push a button, and then Satan's whole world was shoved right in our face or in the face of our children, or the face of our grandchildren, right in our own home, which could never, could never have happened 50, 60 years ago. Just could not have happened. So stay away, basically, from most television. If you watch a little bit of news, I don't like to watch two or three hours of news even on the Sabbath. You're just seeing all this violence and stuff. And stay away from sports. You say, what's wrong with sports? Well... Is it getting you closer to God? I played basketball in high school. I played football. Got my my uh, football thing, whatever it is, my letter with a gold football on it. I won two Golden Gloves boxing championships. I was a star miler all three years in high school on my track team. I was in the locker room and horse around with all the guys. I know all about that. It was fun. It's not wrong to do some of it in the right way, but it does not draw you closer to God. You don't learn about God's ways when you're telling dirty jokes in the locker room and flipping up to other on the rear with your towel and jumping around and cutting up like young men do, and you're not really getting close to God and doing all that kind of stuff. You're certainly not getting closer to God in the boxing ring seeing if you can knock the other guy out before he knocks you out. Uh, that's not God's way. You just have to figure that out. Think it through. Don't watch that kind of stuff. Worldly fun. You need to avoid that kind of stuff on God's holy day. You say, oh my, what can you do then? Well, you want to learn to enjoy the Sabbath, rest, and to worship God. And when I first came to Ambassador College, I did learn that and came to really appreciate that very, very much. 
I learned to enjoy the type of atmosphere we had there in the early years at Ambassador College. We would get up and Mr. McNair and I would go down in the lower gardens and have time to just deliciously, quietly study the Bible and not be in a hurry. So if you really want to serve God, you think you're always in a hurry. Got this class to study for this activity. We're working our way through college. You have time. You have time to think, time to study, time to meditate, time to pray to God, and there's no time limit. You just can take time to worship God, and it's wonderful. You can take quiet walks around, and we did a lot of that in the early years of Ambassador College. Us fellows who lived on the third floor of Mayfair, we would have our own study after dinner, but then along about 9.30 or 10, it kind of became a sort of a tradition. We would all gather in the big room. There's one room where three fellows lived, and we'd bring in wine and cheese and crackers and so forth and just have a little bit of a thing. We didn't get drunk, and no one drank very much at all back then, frankly. We were poor, and we were very careful. We would just talk. Then what would we talk about? Worldly things? No. We talked about world events. We talked about prophecy. We talked about things relating to the Bible. And frankly, it was a lot of fun because we were there learning. It was an exciting way of life. And so then later uh, in Ambassador College, well, I went on baptizing tours and three different summers in a row. And we were visiting here and driving from Little Rock to Russellville and then over to Oklahoma City and then to Tulsa and then up to Joplin and then up to Wichita and driving and missing sleep. And boy, we look forward to the Sabbath day. Whoo, what a blessing. Because then we didn't have to keep going. We could quietly rest, sleep in later, study the Bible, have time to pray more. One summer, I worked in the woods. In fact, it was after my first year in Ambassador College. I worked the entire summer as a lumberjack up in Oregon. And they didn't, they didn't say timber. They'd say, down the hill or side of the hill. And they'd hear, crick, 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 wah. And then all the little crickets or whatever, whoa, 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 then all of a sudden be real quiet. And then you'd go on to the next tree and always remember the beautiful big forests up in Oregon. But we look forward powerfully to the Sabbath because Charles Duncan and James Bidwell, the young men we were working with, young men, they were older than us. They were about 35 and we were just 19, my friend and I. But... They had got behind financially the previous year in a logging venture over in uh, Idaho, so they came back home. They were Seventh-day Church of God guys, but at least they kept the right Sabbath, and they didn't cuss very much, more than they should have, but not very much, <laughs> and, and they were more clean, and that was good. And so we would get loaded up in the Jeep and bang down the hill and stayed with Mr. and Mrs. Hinion. Wow, did I look forward to the Sabbath. Because the Sabbath evening then I could take my time. I'd get my first shower all week because during the week we would take turns taking baths in this wash tub. We would put the wash tub out in the sun and take turns every other day or something getting a, getting a bath in the wash tub, hoping the water wasn't too cold. We'd have to sit there and wash real quick. And, and then we look forward to a real shower. And then we had chance to study and to pray and to meditate on the Sabbath days, a day we just deeply look forward to, a day of rest, a day of contemplation to go out and take a walk around the little quiet logging town and look up at the sky and look at the trees and think about God and think about God's purpose in our lives. And then later at Ambassador College, as more students came, more girls came, and they had more activities, 
And I was right there as a teacher and was down there with them quite often and saw it, experienced it as part of it. They would have Sabbath brunch and the girls joined the full-time people and not many full-time people were there, but they'd take turns helping set up and the boys had to help too in those days, which was good, set up the food and set up the chairs and, and serve this uh, meal that had been partly prepared the previous day. They'd have brunch together the students would enjoy that young boys and girls getting together enjoy that fellowship and then after brunch a number would take a walk all around south orange grove or over on grand street where mr and mrs a and later lived a very beautiful big quiet boulevard with big high trees and you could walk and talk and quiet away from the busy orange grove traffic and just meditate and look up at the sky and hear the birds singing and think about the Creator. And I often did that. And then about 11.30 or 12, whenever it was, they'd come back and the Sabbath singing began. And they didn't have to go there. No one commanded them to do any of that. But lots of them, they had two or three different places around the campus later. Uh, the fellows, Dermot, Del Mar Manor, and then another dormitory, and then... Uh, anyway, to where they had a piano and different ones would gather around and sing the hymns together, fellas and girls. They would sometimes have their girlfriend, but it wasn't necessarily romantic at all, but they were singing worship praises to God, praises to God the Creator on the Sabbath and deeply enjoyed it. An atmosphere of love, of kindness, of worship, of honoring the Creator on His Sabbath day. It became a day people really looked forward to, the vast majority. And I talked to many students. I was one of the main counselors in those years because I was freshman Bible teacher and I baptized more than anyone else for many, many years because I was there and I was just the one who first taught them the Bible. I baptized Dean Blackwell and some of you know Dr. David Albert later got on the television. I baptized him and Fred Keller is their minister over here in United in, in uh, Mashville and many, many of the old timers I personally taught and baptized. And and I know them. I was there. They would counsel and they were happy. It was a Sabbath day. It was the day they looked forward to. We all did. It was a happy time, a blessed time. So they had a very wonderful, loving time to slowly, thoughtfully get this book Go over it. Think about it. Not just be in a hurry, but to read through these verses and think about what is God saying? Why am I out here in California rather than back in Missouri or Ohio or Alabama or wherever they came from? I'm here because somehow God guided my life to begin to learn about Him as the Creator. And here I am learning His way. I'm learning His way. This is God's holy Sabbath day. Some of you people who grew up in it don't have that same blessing. You have other blessings, but you grew up always keeping the Sabbath and took it for granted more. I didn't. I didn't. It was very, very special. And I've always been grateful for that, that I had. And some of you knew about earlier. But sometimes you can take it for granted because of something you've always done. So you want to realize that. I found that some young people... Some in my family and young people we've had staying over with us and I've talked to others and many others and because it got on my mind and they said the same thing happens often at their house. A lot of young people are not converted and maybe they're not even being called. I don't know, but they kind of escape from God on the Sabbath by sleeping in. 
every Sabbath they sleep in until 11.30 or 12.30 so they don't have to worry about studying or praying. They just stay up late Friday night and then they just sleep. How can they study? How can they quietly take beautiful walks out through the trees and look up at the sky and think about the Creator? They can't. They're sleeping. The Sabbath is the day to sleep away the time. I would just say to you on you young people around the world, don't do that. Get a good sleep. If you need eight and a half or nine hours rather than eight, that's fine. But you don't need 12 hours. The Bible really doesn't need that unless you're getting over pneumonia or something. Double pneumonia, <laughs> you know. Usually just a full eight-hour sleep, they say, is enough, even if you've lost sleep. You cannot worship God in that way. You cannot draw closer to God by letting this precious time just go by, by sleeping and sleeping it away, so to speak or by watching a lot of television. The time is gone. Sure, it's fun. But what have you learned? How have you drawn closer to the Creator who created the Sabbath day as holy time if you don't learn to use that holy time? That is an opportunity where without being in a hurry, you can take this book and quietly, carefully read it, go through the wonderful Bible study course that Mr. Gwynn wrote, slowly, carefully, thoughtfully read that, Look up the scriptures without being in a hurry. Get on your knees and pray for 45 minutes or an hour. Organize your time. Where you get up in time, you can do that. You won't be in a big hurry. During the week, you may be in a hurry and you can't do that as easily. The Sabbath is a time to do that and to go out and sit on your back porch and look up at the sky. There's God up there. I'm down here. And what is God doing with my life? How far have I come? What's ahead for me? Am I fulfilling the purpose of human existence? You have time on God's holy Sabbath day to seek God, to seek God and to walk with God and commune with God and worship God in that special way. So I hope all of you can really learn to do that. God tells us back in, in the New Testament here, if you would, in Hebrews, Turn with me, if you would, to the book of Hebrews now, uh, chapter 10. And uh, something I think most of you are familiar with, but it's very, very important. God tells us to hang on no matter what. And the man brought out, our visitor, in the sermonette about hanging on and being hanging on to the truth. That's a very fine topic, very important. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. I had long talks sometimes with some of the older students and students that were my age. When were most of those long talks? Long talks, either at night occasionally or on the Sabbath day because otherwise we had the next class and we all had to work hours right in between the classes to earn our way along. You're always in more of a hurry. Or at night you were tired. But on the Sabbath day, you just go out walking and talking for a couple of hours and talk things over. And in church you can do that too, before and after church and visiting with each other. Stir each other up to love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as you know, the Sabbath is also called a holy convocation. You're to meet with others. In Leviticus 23, I won't turn there, but write it down if you wish. Leviticus 23, verses 1 to 4, it talks about God's Sabbaths, and he starts out with a weekly Sabbath. It's a holy convocation. 
for you to get together, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching, as you see the time of Christ's return, as you see the end of this society coming, as we certainly do, you do it all the more. Get together, worship with one another, pray for one another, stir each other up. And the Sabbath is a special time to do that, not just during the sermon, but as you meet each other. How are you, John? How are you, Jane? And everything going well? And I'll be praying for you and hope you can overcome this. And you pray for me. Don't just pick at each other, but do get to know each other. Do try to help each other. Stir each other up to get closer to God and to good works. God wants us to do that. And the Sabbath is a wonderful opportunity uh, for that. So we want to remember these things. Let's turn now back to Psalm 95, if you would. Psalm 95, and I'm going to begin reading here in verse 1. This is called a Sabbath psalm. You'll see it's printed that way in some of the uh, Bibles. Psalm 95 and verse 1. This was a psalm that the Jews have particularly used at, at, as part of their Sabbath worship. Psalm 95, O come, let us sing to the Eternal. That's the capital L-O-R-D, the Eternal, the Ever-Living One. Let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. You see, you worship God joyfully. You see, they sing these songs together. You picture God sitting at controls of the universe. And I remember I was down in Lugano, Switzerland one time, and I had some of the most magnificent demonstrations of the power of God there I'd ever had in that particular way. Uh, Lugano is surrounded by high mountains, and, and Lake Lugano, uh, that's the place Mr. Armstrong had picked out for the European branch of Ambassador College at first. And uh, we were staying in a villa, uh, and we got free there from church members in London. And... Anyway, they, uh, as we looked out from the balcony, the rain start was not there yet. It was coming, and the thunder started. And it was just the most powerful thunder I've ever heard, just all around. Boom, boom, boom. And the, it echoed because it was unusual because it echoed. It would go here, bounce there, and then bounce over there. I'd never seen thunder bounce around. The rolling thunder, booming, the voice of God. And you sense the heavens and so on. I thought, boy, that's the power of God. <laughs> so it was very inspiring to me from that point of view. But at any rate, he is the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. Let us shout joyfully with psalms. You see, we sing psalms to God. They're written to be sung sometimes. They're written by David as songs. For the eternal is the great God, the great king above all gods. On the Sabbath, think, this day points to the great God who created the sun, the moon, the stars, everything that is. And his hand are the deep places of the earth, the heights of the hills, the mountains are Graham. He's the one who raised up this, these mighty mountains, the heights of the hills. The sea is his, for he made it. His hands formed the dry land. Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the eternal, our maker, you see, our creator, the Sabbath points to creation. For He is our God. We don't just worship any old idea of a God. We worship the God who gives us life and breath and everything we have. 
as we take the Sabbath seriously and draw close to that God and use this precious holy time, we can grow and grow and grow a lot more than we would if we let this precious time go by. So we're the sheep of his pasture and he and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the day of rebellion and as in the trial of in the wilderness when your fathers tested me, ancient Israel tested God by breaking the Sabbath. The two big things they did. Why was ancient Israel driven into slavery? Read Ezekiel chapter 20. The two big reasons were idolatry and Sabbath breaking. Idolatry and Sabbath breaking. Those two things cut you off from the true God. You say, well, murder would be worse. Well, it looks that way humanly. But if you get away from the true God into idolatry, and if you get away from God by breaking his Sabbath, then you also get into idolatry. And then all the other commands have no meaning. Then you start to break them too, all of them. So you've got to have the true God. He punished them for idolatry and Sabbath breaking. They tested me, they proved me, though they saw my works. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said it's a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath they shall not enter my rest. And what was that rest? I won't take time to turn there now, don't want to run way over, but turn to Hebrews chapter 4. And we've often explained that to you. Hebrews chapter 4 is talking about the seventh day Sabbath and how the people of God are to keep the seventh day Sabbath. I would always give you that if the subject is just proving which day is the Sabbath. But this is a Sabbath psalm, a Sabbath psalm, very, very important. So we want to worship God and know that that is so important to worshiping God, keeping his holy time, which points to him as the creator God. Turn back to Deuteronomy chapter 4 now, brethren. Turn with me at this point to Deuteronomy chapter 4. And here he gives a sort of a final warning in a certain way to ancient Israel before he gets into giving the statutes and judgments. He said in verse 25, To our forefathers, because many of us are Israelites, partly or all together, he, he, Deuteronomy 4.25 When you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land which we have here in the United States and Britain and Canada and so on and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and some of our carved images are automobiles and television sets that we lust after we think we've got to have more material stuff all the time and do evil in the sight of the eternal you curse and damn his name in the marketplace. You rip each other off and keep the poor and make them more poor. And the rich get richer and the poor get poorer throughout our land. And you have all kinds of fornication and adultery and people living together without benefit of marriage. The little children don't know who their real parents are. Other little babies you murder before they even get out of the womb. 45 million, over 45 million butchered by the abortion industry. That's an abomination to God's sight. And then pretty soon we'll begin to see men here walking down the street, even in Charlotte, kissing each other. It'll bring out my carnal nature, but I'll have to fight it. I'd like to, I'd like to give them one right in the kisser, you know, so to speak, if they start that here. But they will. They undoubtedly will. Men marrying men and women marrying women. If you get into all of that and turn aside from God... 
I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish. God says you're destroying the family. You're destroying the whole knowledge of God. You're destroying the whole basis of decent society. You'll perish. And the eternal will scatter you among the people. And you will be left few in number among the nations where the eternal will drive you. We will be taken into slavery. And there you will serve gods, so-called gods, the work of men's hands, wood, stone, which neither see nor hear nor smell. But from there, when you're finally humbled, when you're finally absolutely down and you're hurting and you're scared to death and you've been beaten and some around you have already been killed or gassed in a gas chamber, from there you will seek the eternal your God. You'll finally wake up and say, yes, I want to keep God's Sabbath day. I want to take time on that day and every day to seek my God, my Creator that gives me life and breath. That's the most important thing. There isn't anything as important as that. From there you will seek the eternal, your God, and you will find him. When will you find him? If you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. Whatever you do, do with your might. Don't do it halfway. If you don't believe this and you don't like it, you don't have to stay here. I hope you all will stay. I don't mean to threaten you, but I'm just saying you better learn to go all out one way or the other. Don't sit on the fence the rest of your life. Make up your mind. Go all out for the God of heaven. He's beginning to intervene now. When you're in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, and it's already beginning to happen, our nation is going down. It's never going to be the same again, my friends, as it was even two years ago. Never. And you'll see that if you don't doubt me. Just watch. When all these things come on you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey His voice, yes, you need to have that realization and begin to seek God with all your heart. Why do I read this? Because the Sabbath is one of the main parts of the week when you have time and where, in a sense, indirectly and in principle, you're commanded to do it. You're commanded to worship God, to seek God, Take time to study your Bible carefully without being hurried. Drink in of it. Remember back in John 6, 63 to 60, no, 53 to 63, he tells you to feed on Christ. You need to eat and drink of Christ. You need to study this word profoundly. Drink in of it. Feed upon it. Feed upon it. And the Sabbath day is a day you can do that better than any other time. God's special presence is in this holy day. Don't let the day just go by. It's a blessing to have the church here in the afternoon for many because sometimes you go to church first. We may have to have morning and afternoon later. And some people would prefer that. Some of the older people, I understand that. But I enjoy afternoon service because in the morning, I don't want to sleep in, as my wife knows. I wake up nearly every Sabbath somewhere between 6.20 and, and 7 o'clock very seldom sleep till after 7 o'clock. But if I sleep till 7, it's a little bit later than usual. Sometimes I'll sleep till 7.15 or something. And then I have time to study and to pray and to meditate, to take a quiet walk around the neighborhood, to look up at the sky, to think. Time to think, to contemplate, to meditate, to draw closer to the Creator. So God wants us to learn to use this precious time and you will seek the eternal God and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. 
God wants us to do that, and the Sabbath is a special time to do that. That's one reason I'm reading uh, that chapter now. And then turn back to Psalm 119 this time. Psalm 119 at this point, brethren. And this is the longest chapter in the Bible, so don't get afraid. I won't read it all. (laughs) In fact, very little. Psalm 119. Blessed are the undefiled in the way who walk in the law. And certainly the Sabbath is such a profound part of God's law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep His testimonies, who seek Him. Here again, this attitude. The Sabbath is a chance to study, to quietly meditate, say, Who am I? Why am I here? Why am I alive? Why has God opened my mind to understand this? What is really happening around me? Am I fulfilling the purpose for which the Creator created me? Am I fulfilling the purpose for which I'm drawing breath? You can't fool God. You can't play games with God. Take time to think about it. Blessed are those who seek Him with a whole heart. They also do no iniquity and walk in His ways. You commanded us to keep your precepts diligently. It's with all our heart we should keep God's teachings. Oh, that my ways were directed to keep your statutes. Then I would not be ashamed. When I look into your commandments, I will praise you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I will keep your statutes. Oh, do not utterly forsake me. So God promises many, many blessings if we do, in fact, learn to seek God with all our being. And God tells us to do that, of course, over and over again. So we do need to do that, brethren. Turn back to a psalm of David here now, Psalm 5. Psalm 5, verse 1. Give ear to my words, O Eternal. Consider my meditation. Give heed to the voice of my cry, my King and my God. For to you I will pray. My voice shall you hear in the morning. Do you pray in the morning? Are you in too big a hurry? You should learn to pray before you leave the house. If you leave the house without praying on your knees, you are going out naked. You don't like to think of it that way. You're spiritually naked and you haven't turned to God and asked for His special help. Just picture yourself going out naked. You better learn to take time to pray before you get going in the day. My voice you'll hear in the morning. In the morning I will direct it to you and I will look up. You are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. Again, if you worship Him on the Sabbath, you'll not have that attitude. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The eternal abhors the bloody and deceitful man. But as for me... I will come into your house in the multitude of your mercy. When will they come into God's house? Primarily on the Sabbath, on God's Sabbath, in the fear of you, the deep awe of God. I will worship toward your holy temple. Lead me, O Eternal, in your righteousness because of my enemies. Make your way straight before my face, for their inward part is destruction, and they lie, and so on. Cast them out on the multitude of their transgressions, for they have rebelled against you. Now notice verse 11. Here should be us. Here should be us, the church of God, at the end of this age. Let this be you. But let all those who rejoice, let's honor God's Sabbath. Let's rejoice in God's Sabbath. 
Let's rejoice in the chance we have to worship the true God to sing praises to Him on His Sabbath day, to worship with other brethren on the Sabbath day, to have that kind of warm, loving fellowship on the Sabbath day. Let all those rejoice who put their trust in you. Let them ever shout for joy because you defend them. Let all those who love your name be joyful in you. For you, eternal, will bless the righteous with favor. You will surround him as with a shield. Our God is good, and our God will bless us if we seek him with all of our hearts. We will have trials and tests, yes, but he will never leave us nor forsake us, and he will bless us far more if we really learn to worship him, to draw close to him, to rejoice and do those good things on his Sabbath day, and to worship the Creator on the day that points to him as the Creator, and to enjoy it and to look forward to it and to honor God on His Sabbath day.